This is GSAP Conversations from the Graduate School of Architecture, Planning and Preservation at Columbia University in New York City. I'm Dina Malandraos. Thanks for listening. Hi, I'm Louisa Furia, a first-year MRC student at Columbia GSAP. I'm speaking with architect Jurgen Meyer in advance of his lecture at the school on March 26, 2018. Jurgen's practice was founded in Berlin in 1996 with Andre Sonter and Hans Schneider joining as partners in 2014. The firm has developed projects at the intersection of architecture, communication, and new technology, and their work has been published and exhibited worldwide, including MoMA in New York, SF MoMA, and Kunstbibliothek Berlin. Thank you for speaking with me today. Hello, welcome. So I want to talk about a few specific projects and some of your obsessions. But to begin with, I'm wondering if you can just say a bit generally about your philosophy of design for those who maybe aren't so familiar with your work. Well, thanks for having me here today at Columbia. And it's great to be back after teaching here for a couple of years. It's an exciting school. And I remember that teaching here was all about also exploring my let's say, concerns or obsessions, as you framed it, but also to confront that with, of course, a discourse with the students and the school. Our practice really spans from very small objects to large urban scale, and we don't really make a distinction of the discipline, uh, really. Uh, sometimes it's shown in the art context, sometimes it's a design exhibition, mostly it's an architecture or urban planning you know, fields um, that we are discussing our work. But what is nice, sometimes you have the same project, you know, in different contexts and the feedback in the discourse is actually completely different. And that's a wonderful extra. We get more feedback, more um, input, and um, it's a little bit more diverse uh, to reflect on your, on your work. So we do look into the relationship of the body to our environment through new technologies, digital media, but also new technologies in construction. Uh, what are the new materials that are out there? What are the f whatever transforming modes of communication and what does that mean for inhabiting our spaces? And if you look at the projects, they're quite sculptural. They try to be abstract in a certain way. They look like they take a detail and blowing it up. So they are kind of scaleless in terms of shifting between scales. They try to abstract architectural elements like windows or stairs as being part of a larger structural exploration. And usually, although after all these years, about 22 years now that we are running the practice, you see certain familiarities or let's say a certain canon that develops a, lang a language as like at the same time it also the work is looking for something specific for the very location and takes that overemphasizes it like takes that into the foreground and therefore allows maybe a different reading of the context yeah i mean that's exactly i think what i have found so striking about the work is that crossing of disciplines, but also, like, more importantly, the way that you mediate opposing force. I think you're the ultimate mediator, because I see in all of these projects this brilliant conversation that does happen between, yeah, like you said, architecture and sculpture, between the digital and the analog, the private and public, history and the future, and then even, you know, the kind of pleasant and non-disturbing versus the violent. So, I'm wondering, like starting with this, you know, sort of architecture as art or sculpture, you know, I obviously, like I see a great connection to 
Kiesler in a lot of your work, and I'm wondering, you know, formally about that aim in creating these sort of endless surfaces between, you know, the floor, wall, and ceiling, and like the blurred boundaries between, you know, architecture and art. What is, what kind of is the purpose of that? Is it so that the program then is endless? I'm really curious about this sort of endlessness and what its aim is ultimately. Well, if I think back to maybe the early 1970s when I was um, when I was quite young, brutalism and you know concrete buildings were like the new hot thing. And somehow, also, I think as a young kid, you understand what's you know, what's what's boiling and what's coming up. So. When I look at these buildings in exposed concrete where you have the 45 degree angles, that I think is somehow an early stage of this continuous surface where you have the floor angling up to the wall and therefore you kind of give up the tectonic construction, which is kind of a transparency of how things are made towards more of an envelope idea. Now, um, it might deal with an understanding of weightlessness or anti-gravity, mm-hmm. mm-hmm. which might come with a certain space age understanding. Um, it might deal with um, even like references to kind of caves where it was more of a hollowing out rather than a constructing, something that kind of takes you in rather than that's constructed around you. And in, in that way, I see this kind of early 70s work as a continuous surface 101, if you like, you know, before digitalization. Mm-hmm. But there was the thinking already there and the material was there, which is this liquid gray mass that's at some point then starts to freeze and, you know, holds the form while, you know, it has to be poured before. What it does to program, I don't really know. I know it does a lot to atmosphere and the shifting and the, let's say, the transformational aspects of an interior atmosphere. That's, I think, what concerns us. At the same time, we always try to build in these non-descriptive, like programmatically non-descriptive spaces that allows you for certain like different potentials um, that need to be discovered. So the program somehow develops over time after the buildings are inhabited, um, taken over, uh, appropriated. And um, it could be an extension of infrastructural space. It could be um, that you add certain pockets and programs that overlap with their time-sharing aspects. Of course, you know, the idea of Kiesler was that you have this endless envelope and there is no, like, space that is prescribed for a specific function or program. In a certain way, that refers to it, but um, it's a little broader than that. You know, we have spaces that are kind of flexible in different times, in time-sharing, in programmatic sharing, in even, let's say, it's vacancy to develop for future programs. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I'm really interested because that that sort of like constant state of transformation and like the weightlessness they talk about is obviously it is directly kind of related to the digital now. And with your work that deals so much with the body in space and also the digital, I'm wondering how you see it. Is the body communicated differently digitally than it is in space, you know, like, what is this relationship between the digital to the material world, do you see? And what is it, I mean, I guess we can talk a little bit about how you've mixed, you know, these, like, data security patterns, right, and mixed it with personal identity and blown them up and turned them into architecture. 
Well, there is, of course, this interesting dialogue between your physical body and the digital body. And the physical body you can kind of construct in a certain way. And you construct it with what you're wearing, you know, what kind of hairstyle you have, the way how you move. At the same time, you also have a digital body that maybe even more so can be constructed and you might have multiple digital bodies at the same time and they might be at a different place than where you are physically and there's a kind of a play but also a confusion maybe with the two of them. Um, both come with different expectations and complaints right. <laughs> of course. Um, so that's the interesting part and the way you know how you communicate with your digital body um, and then the physical body comes in at some point it you know has a certain tension that is productive and disruptive at the same time. If you think of how we organize, how we meet, you know, how you cancel meetings, how you, you know, have WhatsApp groups, and you know, there's like all kinds of forms of like different ways to instantly either cancel or meet, and um, in that way, the understanding of optional spaces or options um, is what somehow controls our handling of our everyday life. In a, in a certain way, you know, when you drive cars all the time and all of a sudden you drive a bike, it happened to me like you want to look into the back mirror and there is no back mirror. So you're used to certain things or like just like taking the security belt, you know, when you're in a bike, you can't do that. Somehow in a digital world, you know, you learn how to restart if something doesn't work and you kind of expect that that also works in the physical world, but there are certainly not all possibilities that you have to restart something. So it's kind of dangerous and uh, seductive at the same time how you deal with certain realities at, at, at the same, yeah. Yeah, because I think that, especially like, because you've done a lot of projects like Metropole Parasol that are, you know, these like really public spaces. And I, I'm always so curious about why virtual environments are so popular for social interaction. And I think it does have something to do with a certain level of this like immediate physical kind of privacy and there's you know a certain f like a certain free anonymity and yet it is the most unprivate location right these like online places so i'm curious what you think the role then of public space built public space is now in an era of virtual social environments and how does security play into that i mean should we be designing physical environments that you know are morphing with our digital environments or should there be like a hard break should that be a refuge from the digital environment well we did one research project for the audi urban future award which was taking the car as an experience machine rather than a driving machine so the windshield became somehow a display between you and the environment that can control what you see or through which city you are driving. So you could always put the Eiffel Tower, if you like, you know, into your city that you're driving in. It doesn't have to be Paris. Or you select only nature and you only see trees and people and nothing that's built and that's not nature. So in a way, you can start to, with the digital technology, maybe control where you are and it might not be New York anymore, it might be your city or my city and it might be a completely different experience in a completely different urban environment. Now I think on the other hand that leaves us with a, a strong desire for real places, um, for an experience that's unique and that's just there you know and that you can share with other people. So in terms of public spaces I think they need to be really specific and seductive somehow, that you experience a spatial quality that you don't experience anywhere else. And our Metro Parcel project, I think, is one of those spaces where it allows for all kinds of activities from 
protests, demonstrations, to celebrations of religious festivities, to just very, let's say, banal, hanging out, doing sports, um, taking care of your kids, and go shopping. And at the same time, it has a certain presence that always kind of attracts you and gives you a certain orientation and place. On the other hand, also brings back in the digital because then people take their selfies, you know, exactly. which is an important cultural moment um, or a feature of our you know, culture right now. And that again throws you back into the digital. That's something that we try to explore and highlight in our project on Times Square, the XXX. It was exactly about you laying down, seeing the space in a different way, but you're looking up not only to the sky, but actually into the webcams mm -hmm. um, that they're there. <laughs> so you can go online, you know, any computer, and you see all these, whatever, 20, 25 webcams that constantly, you know, document and broadcast Times Square. So again, you are there, you're broadcasted worldwide. You might see yourself on these webcams. And this dialogue was something that is interesting. And then, of course, you document that you were there, send it again to friends that you were there at the right time, and so forth. So um, it's kind of a playful the highlighting of that condition. And still, you can then decide if you're part of that game or if you want to escape from that game. And the Metropole, too, I mean, it even works. I mean, if you look from above, you know, like a Google Earth image, then it almost works as a camouflage. So you're both, you know, hyper kind of on display, but from above, it's also this kind of, you know, beige camouflage. But I'm glad that you bring up the triple X in Times Square because I really want to talk about your relationship to, like, history of specific sites because I think that you deal with history in a very specific way, and I think it's done with so much charm because you always seem to kind of be winking at history while still obviously being very modern and avant-garde and, you know, not nostalgic for history, but it's always there. You know, I see it in like the S11 office complex, obviously in Times Square that Triple X is also talking about the like very seedy history of Times Square and, you know, the Metropole again, you know, it's talking about trees, it's talking about the vaulted ceilings of, you know, neighboring churches. How do you mediate in your projects between the historical context of a site and then its future potential. It's a messy process. You know, there's a kind of a, uh, intuition that there is a discovery that you feel like has the potential to develop into something. And that moment, you know, you cannot really learn or that moment you cannot predict. It happens at some point. And if it's not coming, uh, if it's not happening, then it's actually a problem. But most of the time, I think it happens. And um, then there's a certain like an abstraction that comes in, that you take that moment that you find interesting and overemphasize it somehow into somehow a super sign or like a meta graphic or something. And then making that again into a sculptural or three-dimensional object is maybe the challenge that becomes a scale related to the human body and or maybe to the context um, that's built around it. But I think it's something that is more of a, a, a research search and then discovery moment, and maybe it's a certain tool or a certain intelligence, I don't know what you have, or intuition, that at some point, you know, triggers something, and that's what you have to catch. Yeah, it's yeah. generative. I, I, I want you to talk a little bit about your projects in Georgia, because that obviously has very much to do with the kind of old and new and investing in the new. And I'm, I'm really curious how you're feeling about that work now that you know, there's a new president in office, and it seems to me that pace of building has a little bit slowed down there. Do you ever worry that 
you know, your work because it was kind of specific to this political time that it's going to become a relic of that specific political party? Or do you see those works kind of remaining as visions for, you know, like local architects as, you know, inspiration for what can be done, not necessarily right now, but maybe, you know, 20 years from now, 40 years from now? Well, when we got involved, it was a moment of very dynamic transformation in, in Georgia. And I haven't been to Georgia before. I didn't really know the country before. So it was really a jump, like a cold jump start. And we got in, contacted because of the Metropole Parasol in Seville and also of the dining, because of the dining hall in Karlsruhe. It was the beginning of a conversation for a cultural center in the center of, of Tbilisi, but that didn't happen. Um, Fuxas built it later on. But it was the beginning of a conversation for many projects, and mostly infrastructural projects. Mm-hmm. Gas stations, rest stops, border control stations, little airport, and so forth. I compare it a little bit to Germany, maybe post-war, where a lot of buildings just had to be built very rapidly to you know, make the infrastructure work, to make trains run, to have an airport, you know, to have a highway. And I think there was a certain urgency, as I understood later, where things had to be done very quickly. Most of the time, it was, I think, a kind of a competition that we didn't realize at that time. Many architects were asked to make designs for one project and then one got it. It was always approved somehow and either you never heard again about it or you had to deliver drawings very quickly. But it was a very exciting moment. Even after a couple of years, I heard or I got contacted from other young officers from Holland or from France who actually were invited for competitions and one and who asked me for advice. So it was already changing and starting to be developed in a different way. But there were maybe four or five architects who in studio did projects there, Fuxas did projects, Michele De Lucchi, so quite avant-garde architectural projects. At the same time, also renovation of historic cities or even postmodern developments that looked like an old city. So it was very diverse, and I think that diversity you can see in the country. It slowed down the new government, but what's interesting, something happened after that, which is not necessarily now related to architecture and, and urbanism, but there's an interesting cultural scene and music scene that happened, and theater, which is really important, of course, classical music. So now, you know, in Berlin, we had like the coolest club in the world, Berghain. Now the DJs are happy if they can actually go to Tbilisi and play there, which now seems to be like the hot club in the world. So there's a huge kind of reversal now where it, it kind of created us, or it has now a certain attraction that only happened in the last three, four years. Yeah, I mean, you definitely see that conversation and I think it does have a lot to do with your buildings have the, having a very specific formal personality right like they they're not passive right like you either kind of love them or you hate them but either way people are going to interact with them and they're going to either appropriate them one way or another and yeah I think that's I, that makes total sense to me that but well, the potential of these, um, of these projects, and not only ours, were that for many people, Georgia is only a transit country, so you drive through from yeah. Turkey to Azerbaijan. So the last government understood that the architecture along that transit also leaves a mark in your brain, so it's in your <laughs> yes. memory. And so if you have a good memory, it's better than having, a, you know, not such a good memory. So taking care of these buildings along that way was an important, I think, understanding what kind of aura and image you create of your country. 
And I think that's also something that echoed to like the younger generation that they understood something is happening. There's an attention now that's coming, you know, again uh, to Georgia uh, from like an international audience. The wine culture completely changed. There was a huge interest and still is, you know, what is this wine culture doing? <laughs> and it's a re completely rediscovery of one of the oldest wine cultures in the world. So I think it was the beginning of a really interesting transformation. And it seems to now happen in all kinds of fields and also in most of the younger generations that will be the future of the country. Mm -hmm. um, let's talk about your favorite color, um, which in fact is kind of a passive color, but is maybe deceptively so. I'm talking about cosmic latte or beige. Um, but for the Chicago Biennial, you presented a manifesto right on beige, um, from which I'd like to read a little bit because it's just totally brilliant. So you write, after the modernist paradigm of white architecture, the built environment today is characterized by the off-white of beige architecture. Beige is not radical and purist like white. It's moderating and popular. Beige assists formal nuances, games with materials, responses to the rural and urban context, and adaptations to the past. But while beige acts as an emblem of harmony and deconflictualization in architecture, it's omnipresent in the media as the color of violence in images of war-torn desert regions and of the destruction of monuments from the dawn of Western civilization. While the color of war was gray of the trenches in World War I, the red of the burning cities in World War II, green of the jungle in Vietnam War since the 1980s, it has been the color of sand or beige from the Gulf War to Afghanistan, Iraq, and Syria. I love this because it's almost like war and violence today is almost a passive violence, right? I mean, like you can be sitting in a war room somewhere and, you know, send a drone that is going to cause this huge amount of destruction. And I see there's a sort of criticality and contradiction of beige that I wonder if it's a way for you to explore contradictions, you know, in your own buildings. Because I think it's kind of interesting that, you know, your buildings are not passive, but they ironically kind of allow for more trust. Like I saw a photo of the Metropole, which funnily enough is a beige building, and people are sleeping underneath it. That, I mean, I, that would never happen here, right? Like it's this bizarre kind of connection between this like very pleasant, but can potentially be, you know, destructive. And I think that your work with all the smooth surfaces, but there's something underneath there, right? It's not exactly what is what it seems. Mm. The studio started in the... I actually taught a studio on beige here at Columbia, and this was the first year I taught here, I think in 2003, I can't remember really, um, with Mark Kushner. And it continued over the years into installations, and now the manifesto I developed with Philipp uh, Ursprung from the ETH in Zurich. And it's somehow... A specific way to look at our everyday culture now or the contemporary production of architecture where in a way everything turns into like a beige landscape. Um, doesn't matter if it's like an organic sculptural iconic building like Metropole Parasol or just an urban office in a park that happens and it doesn't matter if it's in Germany, if it's in France or in America. So there seems to be a certain power of beige that seems to work on all levels Hardly any urge for a color that is different is happening right now. So each kind of decay that we are witnessing in the last, whatever, 50 years had a certain color palette. And our assumption or 
thesis with this manifesto is that the current color palette is beige. Now, there were two points somehow that caught my attention and I was interested in that kind of culture of beige. One was when I heard about gated communities in Phoenix, Arizona, and where you were only allowed to color your houses or paint your houses in certain shades of beige, because otherwise you would kind of decrease the value of your neighbor's house. So if you would paint your house in yellow or in pink, you know, then the neighbor would have problems maybe to sell the house or maybe not with the same value. The other information I found was to scientists who uh, calculated the color of the universe. And somehow by collecting all the color spectrums um, from, from, the, from the universe, uh, they first thought it would be a turquoise color, but then they found an error in the equation and had to kind of re-evaluate uh, it, and it turned out to be a beige color, which is a cooling moment from like a hot color spectrum to a blue color spectrum. And of course, this goes over you know, millions of years. So in a way, we're living in a beige moment on a global or universal aspect. At the same time, it has very specific economic and, and cultural aspects to it. And that's why we were interested in this specific color of beige. And we did a research by documenting, you know, from very mundane, everyday architecture with no architects, like anonymous architecture, to, of course, high-end cultural buildings. And compare that with the destruction of our Ur culture in Palmyra and like the very early civilization buildings in the Middle East or Near East. And that kind of destruction of the early culture versus the contemporary production of architecture was what we showed at the, at the Chicago Biennial. And what's the color of the future then? <laughs> Maybe we, can, we are going to be stuck in beige. Going to be stuck in beige, I don't know. If it's the universal color, yeah. Mm. At least for another million of years. Yeah. <laughs> um, then I just, I want to end with asking you, a lot of, I think, architects know the how, and you've kind of talked about your academic history starting in Germany, and like that's where you learned how to make architecture, but you, I think, have a very strong point of view, and I think that you have a very strong sense of why, you know, why architecture, so I love to end with just a few words you know, why, why you want to do architecture? Why, just why architecture? That's the most difficult question. <laughs> I think it's the, um, the tool or the language I can use best to express something. It's um, a tool that allows me to express certain aspects uh, that are related to how we live together, how we see our society, how we find the moment of our time right now. And also taking a certain risk in pushing like the status quo of architecture uh, to find the right accomplices and network that you need you know, of clients and companies and specialists and the team that, work, that, that you work with to create a certain vocabulary that speaks of today. I became interested mostly when I looked at Eric Mendelssohn's buildings when I was might be 16 or 17. I come from Stuttgart area and there were a couple of buildings there. And it was not a kind of a national decision. There was something that drew me, like drew me in to just a spatial experience that was fascinating. And by studying architecture, I felt it was a way to get there and to understand it better. After studying, I discovered that it's actually a field that is not only limiting you to building, but it allows you to speak, it allows you to travel, it allows you to, um, to write, and it's 
a very difficult profession. It's a very restricted profession. At the same time, it's extremely liberating. And that's what I enjoy. Beautiful. Thank you so much. Thank you. This podcast was produced by Columbia GSAP in collaboration with Arc Daily. We launched a new series of podcasts called Constructing Practice, in which young architects from around the world speak about their motivations, challenges, and what it means to start a new practice in their respective context. Look for it on iTunes and find more information about the school on our website at arc.columbia.edu.